Nature is very finely developed and is very complex and small things matter a lot to natural systems and so the more we work fully with natural systems and allow nature to uh, come to its full complexity uh, through careful work cooperation with natural forces as in this kind of seed growing uh, you you can really have the rewards of uh, nature's beneficial relationship to you. Welcome to Seeds and Their People. I'm Chris Bowden Newsom, farmer and co-director at Sankofa Farm at Bartram's Garden in sunny southwest Philadelphia. And I'm Owen Taylor, seed keeper and farmer at True Love Seeds. We're a seed company offering culturally important seeds grown by farmers committed to cultural preservation, food sovereignty, and sustainable agriculture. This podcast is supported by True Love Seeds and by our listeners. Thank you so much to our 65 Patreon members at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds. This episode features Brian O'Hara of Tobacco Road Farm in Lebanon, Connecticut, which is just down the road, next town over from where I grew up. And I visited him the day after Christmas. I think you and Brian were sleeping in. And I went to interview him about his work on his farm, and including with 10 seed varieties that we have in our catalog that they grow for us. And they, him and his wife, Anita Johnson, and now their daughter, Clara, have been growing vegetables at their three-acre farm for more than 30 years. I have a whole blurb here, but I think I'm just going to take out a few things because you hear about all this in our interview. So I want to say that he just released a book called No-Till Intensive Vegetable Culture, Pesticide-Free Methods for Restoring Soil and Growing Nutrient-Rich High-Yielding Crops. That's with Chelsea Green Publishing. It's a great book that really catalogs all of the methods they've been developing over the last few decades, especially the last decade or so where they've transitioned to no-till farming. They also do a lot with indigenous microorganisms or IMOs, kind of capturing them in the forest around their farm and introducing them to their fields, this fungally dominant uh, ecosystem of microorganisms and we don't get into that into this in this episode so please check out that book and other interviews he's done about his work with soil but here we'll really focus on seed keeping seed saving seed production at the small farm level where they're primarily focused on growing vegetables for market uh, and so i think it's actually really great the way he summarizes his approach to seeds and gives some kind of fundamentals to people thinking of producing seeds, as well as getting into how he's developed a lot of these varieties that he shares through our catalog. But let me be quiet now and pass it to you. What do, what do you want to say about this episode before we dive in? Well, this was a very exciting episode. Uh, it's always very exciting 
to talk to Brian and and to get his perspective on things. Uh, he's uh, you know, very interesting, very unique. Um, I think in the farming world, uh, kind of person. But I think that knowing how much uh, you know, he was a, a inspiration and 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 really a foundation, and for you in the work um, from a young age, um, you know, also was really powerful. So to hear you all talking, you know, sort of the student, uh, you know, interviewing uh, the teacher um, after all of these years, uh, I found that to be very powerful. I think um, there are so many exciting parts of this for me, especially as a natural agriculturalist, uh, exciting parts, uh, you know, this interview where he goes in and talks about, uh, you know, the relationship of, of, of human beings uh, to these plants you know that that this this is an actual palpable you know very real relationship that we have and that the plants remember the conditions that they're grown under you know and that they transmit that for those folks who are interested in going deeper in in into the ideas of of sort of a you know the spiritual and relational aspect of farming between farmer and his land um this will be uh, i think a very 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 exciting I keep using the word exciting. I don't have another adjective that that I can really think of uh, readily, but for me, that's what it was. You know, I mean, it it, it uh, for folks who who you know are plant nerds, I think you'll get a lot out of it. For people who are uh, into history and, and and culture as well, um, you'll get a lot out of. Um, we are always, you know, uh, super excited uh, to talk to Brian about you know the role of Irish culture. And Celtic culture in general, um, in in how he lives and how he approaches his work, he's he's an, a proud Irishman, Irish American, and really has a, a a powerful perspective on on the role of his Irish culture, um, you know, in this work, but also just in his life. So it's also it's also very nice, um, you know, to 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 see uh, how much he has uh, raised Clara May with that same tradition that uh, she will know where she's from uh, and and who her people are uh, and and for me you know such an african-american person of celtic descent you know who does think a lot about these uh these sorts of things and in, in culture and how it shows up and in our lived experience um i found that to be um something you know deeply deeply fascinating yes and Spoiler alert, we will have Clara May singing an Irish folk song at the end with her boyfriend, her boyfriend's brother, and with Brian accompanying her. So stay tuned for the very end for that. So let's dive on in. Uh, I'm going to transport you now to a cozy winter room by a fireplace and a rotary phone uh, with Brian O'Hara at Tobacco Road Farm. Okay, I'm here at Tobacco Road Farm with my good friend, Brian O'Hara. But I'm wondering if you could introduce yourself, maybe in Irish. Uh, well, let's see. My Irish name is Brian O'Hara. And Tommy Gobra, Magalor, Shinshin, and uh, Iwa. Awesome. What did you say? Let's see. I said uh, things are going really well. I told you my name. Uh, 
I said things are going really well again, and here, here, and good night. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Meanwhile, it's almost noon. <laughs> We're sitting by the wood stove drinking tea, and we just walked and took a tractor tour to teach me some things. Thank you for that. And uh, just really glad to be here in your home at one of my favorite places on earth. <laughs> Thanks for talking to folks on the mic. Ah, glad to have you here. Oh, you know, it's always a pleasure. I appreciate all your work down there. You're doing a great job. Always happy to see you when you come up. And uh, thanks for being you. <laughs> thanks for being you. Can you, do you remember how we met, just to put in context our relationship? Ah, sure. Let's see. I think you were up visiting your ma or staying with your ma. And uh, we knew your ma from down at the local co-op and town and i think i can't remember if she told us or some friends of yours i think told us that uh stephanie's son owen is visiting and he he's kind of needs a summer job or something and so we're like oh great you know send him out because we were totally overwhelmed we had uh i think claire our daughter was just a couple years old and we had grown way too many crops, which is pretty usual for us, you know. And so we had like, I don't know, maybe like 500 or 1,000 tomato plants that we had were way behind on harvesting. And so you came up and you looked really promising being you, you know. And we're like, all right, oh, here's, here's the tomato crop. You know, we're way behind on harvesting. Harvest all the red tomatoes and, and we'll see you in a while. And then I swear it was only maybe like less than an hour. All of a sudden, you, sh you showed up, up at the house, and you're like, I'm all done, boss. What's next? And I was like, what? And you were totally covered from head to foot in green tar from harvesting a 1,000 tomato plants in like an hour flat. And uh, you had crates and crates of tomatoes. And I'm like, holy moly. Um, I was very, very impressed, Owen, very impressed. And uh, I tried to not let out how impressed I was, but I was very impressed. And... Uh, you know, your hairs were all standing straight up because you had the green tar on your arm hairs and stuff. And I was like, all right, on to the next task. But right from the first moment you set foot on the farm, I knew that you were up to great things. <laughs> that was a beautiful summer, 2005. Uh -huh. Yep. And then, and then I worked here again, 2012, basically between cities. Right, right. Yeah, right. would come back home and work with Tobacco Road and yeah. learned um, so much. So much that when I teach people at my farm, they were suggested we had an acronym to shorten the phrase at Tobacco Road. You know, they're like, just say ATR, you know, because <laughs> I would be training everyone the things I learned here. And they're like, okay, Tobacco Road, Tobacco Road. <laughs> so this is really my foundation in, in, in farming. As yeah, I've done it before, but this is where I did it the most and learned the most. And, and always what I loved about working here, well, it was a million things, you know, farming barefoot, being with your family and all the cool people you gather here. But also that anytime I had a question in the field, you pretty much would just stop and answer it in a really deep, complicated, awesome way, which felt extremely generous to me as like a budding farmer. And uh, I just feel like I'm constantly learning from you. So thank you for the ways you teach people and me in particular. Oh yeah, you're welcome. Oh, it's uh, you know, we, we prioritize, you know, people trying to learn so that they can carry on the traditions of farming. Like my mentor taught me, took the time to teach me 
how to farm just and his father had taught taught him taking the time and his father's father and so uh, the knowledge and capacity and wisdom to be able to farm is directly translated from one human to another you know and it goes beyond anything we can learn on books or internet it's uh, the importance of that is primary in in our lives you know we don't we're not uh, we didn't get into farming to make a big profit like I often say, you could do just about anything else besides farming if you wanted to make a big profit. And oh, what's the, what's the easiest way to make a small fortune farming? Uh, why don't you tell me? All right, start with a big one. It sounds very uh, true in my experience, even though I didn't start with a big one. <laughs> oh, I know us either. You know, so you know, it's probably better that way. You know, you don't have a lot to lose. You just keep you know, moving along and making a little headway. Yeah. Well, when I moved to Philadelphia, which is right after I worked with you the second time, and started working with seeds and eventually started true love seeds you know i think we started working together that first year it's year seven now um with you growing seeds for our catalog which was so such an exciting way to continue this relationship and i'm i'm here today to interview but also to bring you seeds and pick up seeds and it's just great to continue kind of trading seeds that way and working together and at this point you have a lot of seeds in our catalog and i'd love if you could you know tell people why they're so special. I mean, I know why, um, but I, I would love people to, to dig into these Tobacco Road farm seeds uh, in a big way because they have so much intention put into them and so much work put into them mm -hmm. to make them the amazing crops they are today. And I, and I feel like even getting into how you've developed some of them would be fascinating to some of the seed people listening. Kind of as I was saying about the mentorship of the human and being able to evolve humans and human farming through direct mentorship, it's really the similar relationship with the actual crop and plant. And our, our role as humans is a co-evolutionary process where we're choosing and using our will to grow these plants in uh, a mutual beneficial relationship so to have that level of regard for the crop that you're working with can be very rewarding on on deep levels and the crop responds to people that are their caretakers so when we grow seed we are perpetuating and improving that crop so that it can perpetuate and improve us. You know, as the seeds acclimate to your climate and are more appropriate uh, for growing in your exact environmental conditions, uh, you know, you see improved growth and improved yields and profits and all that goes along, healthier crops, with that kind of evolution. But but there's another really important aspect that I realized was when we were doing research on the Coetzee agglomeratus uh, wasp, which is a predator of cabbage caterpillar. And I was working with an entomologist, Kim Stoner, down at the Agricultural Experiment Station. And we were monitoring Coetzee agglomeratus wasps in the cabbage family crops. And I remember we were, we were watching them over winter. 
and the, the wasp itself which is a very small wasp the wasp lays its eggs on the cabbage caterpillar and then the pupal stage emerges the larva stage de devours the insides of the caterpillar and the pupal stage uh, emerges and spins a cocoon often on the caterpillar carcass or nearby it the cocoons look similar to tomato hornworm parasites you know they're little white cocoons on the backs of the caterpillars and then uh, a wasp emerges out of the pupal stage and uh, the wasp feeds on the flower nectar of the cabbage family so what that essentially meant is because we uh, with the entomologist we were watching the pupal stage the the, the wasp overwinters in the cocoons so in the fall when you're harvesting your cabbages you'll see all the cocoons on the bottom leaves or on the collared leaves or you'll see the pupal stage and that is how the wasp is going to overwinter in the spring when the flowers emerge from the cabbage or the collard or the kale or whatnot was timed precisely with the emergence of the wasp from the pupal stage well what that clearly pointed to us was that in order to have these wasps in place you have to overwinter and provide the habitat on the undersides of the leaves for the pupal stage to uh, survive winter and then you have to allow the plants to flower for the emerging wasps to have a food source to then prey on the next season's caterpillars well what does that really equal that equals seed production of overwintering your collars and your cabbages letting them go into full flower and then you have the seeds in place so with that kind of simple example of beneficial insect uh, control of cabbage caterpillar you can see the rewards of of a full cycle relationship with the crops that we're growing you know and we've seen that repeated in, in many other crops and there's many other benefits i'm just giving that one as very tangible something we really looked at carefully uh, but the benefits to seed production are, can be extraordinary in these kinds of regards and nature is a conscious sentient being that these relationships are very uh, tangible and very nature is very finely developed and is very complex and small things matter a lot to natural systems and so the more we work fully with natural systems and allow nature to uh, come to its full complexity uh, through careful work cooperation with natural forces as in this kind of seed growing uh, you you can really have the rewards of uh, nature's beneficial relationship to you so you know that's kind of a uh, one of the overarching you know reasons that we like seed growing is to be able to have these kinds of deep relationships with the crop that we're growing and then of course along those lines there's all kinds of you know as i was saying definite means of improving the crop for insect or disease resistance or attributes that you're looking for whether that's you know we do a lot of winter hardiness improvement i could point out like the ice bread arugula from brent brett uh gorgashal i believe is his name down in maryland well when we brought it up here to overwinter in connecticut you know the arugula overwintered but uh, some of the plants would die 
But we did notice that uh, within a single generation of overwintering that arugula in a hard environment, harder environment, that the next year survival rate of, from the first year survival, the next year survival rate went up to 100% in a single generation of seed selection improvement through just natural environmental seed uh, plant selection. We didn't even, you know, select the plants. Nature selected the plants for survival. And then so we've repeated that with numerous other brassica species, you know, the Tokyo, Bacana, the cresses, and uh, we continue to work with mustards and other crops doing similar things. So those crops aren't commercially available. So, you know, we, we, we like to improve things to where there is no commercial option for those kinds of winter hardy greens, you know. It's, and so we try to develop things that are, you know, not otherwise available. So we try to focus our efforts on that. And then uh, we'll select for things like, uh, like we got uh, the golden turnip. Well, the original seeds from the golden turnip had green shoulders and somewhat not consistent shape. So we've been selecting for uh, more consistent golden coloration and for more consistent shape on a turnip. And uh, that's been an effective uh, selection process as well. But then on the other hand, we take the uh, Polish watermelon that we got from our neighbor. In this case, we're trying to continue the genetic diversity of the crop through raising essentially what's a land race to give us more vigor through more diversity. So in the case of the watermelon, we are essentially encouraging diversity, which is the basis of hybrid vigor. So through a diverse pool of uh, diverse types of melons, all still maintained within a basic marketing parameter of similar size and shape, but they have some different colorations on the skin. Uh, that genetic diversity has allowed us to maintain a very vigorous, very productive, reliable, early, extremely sweet watermelon. So, you know, we select for all those traits. You know, as time goes on, we've been selecting the watermelon for almost 20 years now. Essentially, in, in seed saving, it seems like there's two basic mechanisms for crops to improve. So we have your, you have your self-pollinating crops. And then you have your crops that generally do better if they are outcrossed they cross with other plants like a spinach has male and female plants and so they're always going to obviously be crossing with uh, a different plant uh, but a lot of plants of course have the male and female flowers on the same plant now some of those outcrossing plants are self-infertile meaning they can't pollinate themselves and some can to some degree but uh, those plants are the ones that do really well with genetic diversity. So then the, the self-pollinating plants that have male and female flowers on the same plant 
and generally pollinate their own flowers often even before they have opened to maintain their own genetics and and rarely outcross with other plants so that'd be like your beans or uh, peppers lettuces are like that right mm -hmm. and uh, so it's handy for seed savers a self-pollinating crop you know can be planted much closer and you get a lot less uh, genetic diversity and, and whatnot so you know when you think about those in terms of survival and the improvement of the crop you're looking at two dissimilar ways to approach uh, environmental conditions for the crop the the self-pollinating crop essentially what it is doing is it achieves a pinnacle type plant like the the best bean that grows the best here and then it, it propagates itself to fill that area with its own top type comes to dominance one type comes to dominance and that is its means it is not diluted it maintains its genetics the best genetics are, are replicated over and over to a larger and larger degree and so when you look at self-pollinating crops like that, you know, again, they're very easy for seed savers because they, they don't appreciate genetic diversity. They don't readily outcross. You can maintain small populations of top-notch individuals and have a, a really good uh, seed. But most, or yeah, definitely the majority of vegetable crops are actually outcrossing crops. And a lot of them actually experience uh, genetic rundown through if there's not enough of a genetic seed pool you know a, a bean is not going to run down genetically by breeding to itself it is the mechanisms for its survival are set up to uh, continue its pinnacle type and there is not genetic rundown in low populations that is often not the case with uh, a lot of our outcrossing crops like the cabbage family or onions or you know carrot family uh, beet family so the the outcrossers thrive under genetic diversity like america and so they often they're obviously wind pollinated insect pollinated plants you know you'll see they're either pollens are blowing in the wind or insects are frequenting them and large populations of diversity bring the plants what is known as hybrid vigor so when you combine two dissimilar uh, types of cabbage and you combine the two dissimilar parents the offspring exceed the vigor often of either parent the the genetic diversity has a phenomenal impact well noted in the seed trade as called hybrid vigor now of course the seed trade obviously when they create a hybrid are generally taking a very consistent usually low genetic diversity parrot and another low diversity parent that lack the vigor and they sterilize one of the parents 
generally chemically, to only have female flowers, I believe. So it cannot pollinate itself. So in corn, for instance, they would they would cut off the, the male tassels. You know, that would be mechanical, but they've come up with chemicals to do this. And then, so you have just female flowers on this one parent, and then the other one becomes the only pollinator. So every seed is then a hybrid. Uh, and they're completely consistent because every parent is the same on each side with low genetic diversity, and the offspring of that hybrid seed is then also consistent for at least that first generation. Now, to get that same vigor, we can just have broad genetic pools of uh, churning diversity and allow that diversity to constantly hybridize without having uh, stabilized parents and doing this whole process, chemical or whatever, and allow the genetic diversity to be so abundant that you get the hybrid vigor. Now this runs counter to unfortunately market demands because the markets like consistency. Uh, they want every tomato to be the same, they want every watermelon to be the same. Well, you know, that's fine for a, a self-pollinated pepper, you know, non-diversity is fine. You know, you get the same pepper every time and the pepper grows great. But to to apply the bounds of commerce to outcrossing crops invariably leads to their rundown as the genetic pool is, is narrowed to meet the demands of commerce in terms of shapes and sizes and things like that. So you really have to be careful with outcrossing crops to keep up enough of a genetic pool and some diversity without getting it too refined that you still have vigor in the crop. You know, this is what they often talk about. A lot of open pollinated crops can get run down genetically because they're trying to limit its genetics too much. All right. That's great. And and so you have a lot of great examples with this since most of the seeds in our catalog that you provide, well, I don't know about most, but many of them are outcrossers, uh, especially the ones in the cabbage family. And you already mentioned the arugula, but I think that original mix started with a genetically diverse combination of maybe four types of yeah. Dutch arugulas. Yeah. And so you started out with a very diverse um, gene pool. And then I know that with the Misuna land race, you intentionally crossed yeah. several types. And then it'd be cool to hear how you've, a little more on how you approached it with this Polish watermelon too. Okay. So we'll start with the Mizuna. And so the Mizuna, yes, we did, uh, we did a couple things with that. We wanted to improve its vigor through hybridization and also improve its winter hardiness. So in that case, we took uh, Mizuna, just a commercially available Mizuna. It was a long time ago. And we allowed the Mizuna to breed in a field that also had Totsoy and Maruba flowering, which are two other overwintered uh, leafy brassica greens that we're using in the salad mixes and things. And then we just... We just saved the seeds from the Mizuna crop. Uh, 
which allowed some input of diversity from the Tatsoi and the Maruba, but yet, because Mizuna can, of course, you know, was allowed to self-pollinate as well, so maintained primarily Mizuna genetics, but brought in a splash of other diversity through uh, pollination, male pollen, from the other crops. So then we then took that seed and, of course, overwintered it and grew it in winter environments and improved its winter hardiness through successive seasons till at this point it's extremely winter hardy and over time just bred that uh, pool of plants with itself so that it started to what was initially had more shapes and forms of moving more towards tatsoi or a lighter colored uh, maruba uh, now is standardized into a, a pretty similar leaf shape of a kind of a wide bladed mizuna crop which is still not you know still diverse in form but just with it breeding to itself for probably almost 30 years now you know it has, it has stabilized its forms to some degree over initial uh, crossings so that was the development of that uh, and it's and it's a is it featured in your spicy mix or how, how do you use that one here on the farm that one is used in both salad mixes it's, it's not spicy mizuna is tatsu are not particularly spicy so it does go into even just a regular non-spicy blend of salad greens uh good flavor you know we generally grow a lot of the uh, leaf brassicas basically after the summer solstice into the winter when they're in their natural growth cycle and have of course the best flavors during the colder seasons cold temperatures because of course uh, freezing temperatures dramatically improve the flavor of frost tolerant plants because the plants uh, saturate their saps with uh, higher sugar contents which I guess also on a side note, occasionally we will grow something like a mizuna. We'd, we'd plant it this time of year and harvest it in the spring, especially if we're trying to stagger brassica rapa seed crops to have, because say we're growing, uh, you know, Tokyo for Tokyo Bacana for seed. We're growing a turnip for seed and we're growing uh, mizuna for seed which are three of the ones we provide you, uh, you know, those are all going to intercross. But we generally don't want those to intercross. You know, they're diverse enough in and of themselves. And so we will stagger the seeding dates of the different crops so that the flowering periods don't overlap. So most of the brassicas are already in the field and are overwintering. And, of course, they're going to flower early. But if we now seed Mizuna or Tokyo Bacana now, obviously a turnip is a, a transplant, although you could you could do a direct seeding of, of turnip seed and just have smaller plants and flowers. You could start it now and get a flowering. So 
we do stagger them in order to produce, you know, same species type plants like that. But in general, uh, the brassica family, many of the winter hardy vegetables are all winter annuals. And they, they do much better if they grow in their natural time period of growth, which is uh, a turnip or a, a mizuna is meant to be in flower in the spring and maturing its seeds by early summer and then depositing its seeds on the earth to grow through the summer into the fall over winter and then flower and deposit its seeds. So it's a yearly cycle that starts in summer and ends in summer. And that time period for winter annuals is very beneficial for uh, appropriate growth, appropriate flavors, insect and disease resistance. So for instance, like a flea beetle. Now, if you do not plant your brassica family in the spring, and you wait to plant them till it's appropriate time of natural seeding, the flea beetles, as far as I have ever seen, and I think this is probably true across the board, uh, are not present and do not attack the crop. The flea beetle needs to have spring-sown brassica plants to feed on to perpetuate itself through into summer. And so if there's nothing available for it in the spring, if no plants are growing there out of their natural cycle, the flea beetle doesn't have the food source to persist and your crop is going to be completely clean of flea beetle. Now that is also true of overwintering the arugula or the mizunas and the overwintering plants that are still flowering in May or April when the flea beetles emerge. The flea beetle will not assault those plants in flower even though there are leaves right there that they could assault even though they're in flower they have still have leaves uh, because natural cycles are in place and there is some kind of natural mechanisms that indicate to those flea beetles that this is not an appropriate crop to attack now and so we've experimented even planting I remember we did one year mustard greens we had flowering mustard greens in May, and we seeded mustard greens in April and had them emerge. And the, the mustards that were seeded in April were uh, totally attacked by the flea beetle right next to flowering mustards of the same variety that were completely left untouched. So again, this speaks to natural cycles, and it is important for seed growers, you know, if you're getting into seed growing, to really comprehend that winter annual cycle of growth and for being able to raise seeds in appropriate times obviously we can tweak them like i was saying you know a little bit here or there especially if you have really strong soils and things you can get insect resistance even growing a brassica in the spring but a lot of these you know working more in natural cycles is much easier for healthy seed production
Can you say a little more about the um, Polish watermelon? And also I want to throw in here that this is, you know, since all of our growers grow some ancestral crops, this is the one, you know, I'm sure you could have ties to some of these brassicas too ancestrally, but this is one that you identified as a ancestral crop. But can you speak to that and also like a little more about what are the variations and the genetic diversity you're looking for and how you keep it going? Oh, sure. Yeah, we love our Polish watermelon. Uh, let's see, I was giving some seeds away recently and somebody asked me, what, what's the name of this and variety? And I said, oh, my Polish neighbor. And they said, oh, my Polish neighbor. When actually I was going to tell them my Polish neighbor gave me the seeds and I was going to explain the story, but they're like, nope, the name of the variety is now my Polish neighbor. And so, uh, but we, we do refer to it as Polish watermelon. The, the fellow that bred it, his name is actually Eugene. So sometimes we call it Eugene's melon. But uh, so basically, you know, I am part Polish. You know, I had a Polish grandmother. She came over from Poland, although most of my family is obviously Irish and Scottish and things. But uh, she was a, a fantastic woman. You know, we really hold her in high regards. And although she's not related to Eugene, uh, we did really hit it off with my Polish neighbor around who, you know, came over from Poland uh, not that long ago, maybe uh, maybe 30 years ago or so, 40, 35, something. He came over as a older uh, teenager. He, got, he managed to get out of communist Poland uh, by getting into the seminary and uh, being uh, getting, studying to be a priest. And the Polish uh, seminaries was the route to freedom in those days because you could travel outside the country and things like that. And so he got over to America and uh, married an American and, and stayed here and stuff like that. But his father was still in Poland, who was a super avid gardener. And Poland has, uh, you know, he told us a lot about Poland and described, you know, modern Polish agriculture. And they are a very serious vegetable production region. A lot of Europe's vegetables are coming out of Poland. It's very good soil, uh, very well-trained farming. They didn't collectivize. The communists, when they were in control over there, did not collectivize Poland to the extent that they collectivized a lot of other farms in other communist countries. It was a little more independent, a little more left landholders alone and to keep up production and, you know, was very successful. He did tell me that, that this great story about uh, that the, the communists, he said they were really... Uh, generally trying to help the people you know they weren't good at it and everybody hated the government but you know they he was like yeah they they actually were really trying to to help you know as opposed to get to some other countries and your governments are a little more corrupt than that you know but uh he's like yeah they really a lot of them were really trying to help they were just they just were terrible at it but they would take all the people and workers and things and kids and Everybody had to work on a farm. Russians were telling us the Russians did the same thing. Everybody had to work on the farms for a month out of a year. So, uh, you know, it was fine for Stefan. You know, he was, uh, he'd go out and work in uh, gooseberries and currants and black currants and things like that. And he said, it's a funny thing, you know, black currants don't really taste good. You've tried black currants, you know, and they're maybe not the best flavored thing in the world. But he said that, you know, as Polish youth, when you're out working in these huge 
black current fields and your job is just to harvest black currants and it's hot sun and you're working all day that eventually you just you just eat black currants because you know there's so many and they're juicy and and then eventually he said as time goes on you you start to like the flavor of black currants and so then what that does is then as you get older you would you would actually buy black currant jams and things like that because you actually like them at that point and so like the communists were smart enough to to develop their own market you know by having everybody work in the fields and then you later on want to eat black currants but the russians they were telling us that it was just they were like they're like really heady mathematicians and they were like it was terrible they would put them on to turnip lines sorting you know rotten turnips and rotten cabbages when they could be doing like a high high math problems and like you know there'd be some uh, overseer started vodka drinking early in the morning that's telling them to sort the cabbages and they didn't have as a rosy picture about but everybody over there was had to work in the agricultural fields which was an interesting idea but again you can see it's not real popular you know like they they meant well yeah so uh but anyway eugene was a avid Polish gardener and you know developed you don't usually think of watermelons from Poland but but wow did he ever you know he spent a long time developing the genetic base and like I was saying it's it you know earliness sweetness uh, you know genetic diversity but not too diverse you know still you know in the in the similar shapes and sizes and uh, so Stefan brought the, these over. He's brought some other crops too that we've tried out over the years. And uh, but that was a, just a clear winner for us. So we we just brought it here, and we started growing it. We give him seedlings every year to grow. He grows up his place too, and uh, so we've just maintained the genetic diversity while also you know acclimating it to the American climate, which Poland and America are pretty similar you know environment wise and but we have certainly selected for uh, earliness and flavor and size simply by saving the best of the melons you know which is similar to what we do with the tomato as well and uh, so just you know which is pretty standard way to improve your genetics of your crops you just save the best and you use them so you know just basic program like that with the with the melon yeah my memory from working here uh those times was that we would have a watermelon every coffee break every, which every is what coffee. you call lunchtime, lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> coffee break yeah. um and go pick the best one out mm -hmm. that's ready and then sit around the table and kind of decide together, is this one worth saving seeds or is it not? Spitting them out and collecting them at the end, which yeah. is what we've replicated at True Love Seeds with our watermelon, now that we can uh, grow a nice sweet watermelon. For a while we were growing a Nigerian agusi melon, which you don't eat the flesh of, you just eat the seeds. And luckily we found a friend in Mississippi to grow that one who's connected to it through Nigeria. So now we can grow a nice sweet eating watermelon and we do the same thing as you. Um, does that accurately describe how you had been saving the seeds? Well, yeah. I mean, that's how we got started in yeah. selecting the best. But obviously at this point, you know, our production is ramped up. And now we 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 basically, we do more selection like that for our own 
and make sure that you know we're for we have the top variety type like so we try to really and make sure that the mother plants are really improving every year but then of course for for commerce for so you guys and stuff you know we grow a lot of melons and so we can't eat every one you know and we've got a uh, shuck out but you know the genetics have just they're consistent at this point you know the flavors are great the vigor is great the disease resistance is great you know mm-hmm. so well, I, I think it's worth noting for any of our growers and at this point it's around 75 of you out there who are listening that we're really going to do a special focus this year on um, selection obviously we all do it all the time but we want to create selection goals with each of our growers this year that we kind of write down and support people towards. And that one way to really focus on selection is differentiating which ones you're saving for planting at your farm next year versus which ones you're offering through the seed catalog, which might sound like, oh, why don't we get the best ones? But it's it's selecting from the cream of the crop for your next planting, which then translates to next year's seed sales. So we're investing in many, many generations by keeping back the best ones for next year's planting. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously you can't eat thousands of watermelons and evaluate every one, you know, as much as I'd like to. (laughs) Well, I I texted um, a couple of our growers who grow watermelons and one of them, Amira Mitchell, who's on a previous episode from Sista Seeds, who grows is the primary grower of our Odell's white watermelon, which we also grow on our farm, which is a great kind of soft-rinded, very pale, both skin and flesh, like a pale pink flesh, a pale green um, rind watermelon. She said that in order to deal with large amounts of melons, she's used the chipper function on her BCS and would put them either whole if they're small enough or cut in half through this wood chipper, I guess, uh, and then kind of let the 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 flesh ferment a bit in buckets with like a high surface area, so not deep, you know, small um, necked buckets, but like for a, a slight fermentation in with a lot of surface area in a shallow bucket. That's a good question. It probably would be about a day or two. Most of our ferments we do at our farm are three days, but watermelons go very quick. Yeah, all the sugars in the watermelons. Yeah, actually with Amira, years ago we tried to make watermelon juice to drink using an apple press, actually. (laughs) We got all the flesh out, tried to use this as a way to get the seeds out as well. And then the watermelon juice went within a day went bad so yeah watermelons ferment very quickly mm-hmm. yep uh yeah because they're very challenging to get the seeds out of I, I, it is the hardest crop for us to uh, produce seeds from you know because the flesh sticks to the seeds so much it'll float with the seeds or it'll sink with the seeds you know depending on the conditions uh so we're constantly trying to screen it and get the get the flesh out of it very very challenging you know it's not like a cantaloupe 
where the seeds are all on the insides or cucumbers, you know, this they're all embedded in tremendous amounts of flesh. It just wants to stick to the seed. So if someone's listening out there, I'm not talking to you seed farmers who only grow seeds and can invest in special watermelon <laughs> seed removal equipment, but for other farmers who are primarily growing vegetables for sale, but also seed crops, what suggestions do you have for watermelons? We'd love to hear it. <laughs> yes, that is true. I read in the, I think it was Seed to Seed, Susan Ashworth, she just would send all her watermelons down to the school system and have all the kids eat watermelons. You know, a small town in probably the 70s or something, but and then all the Californian school kids would eat watermelons, but promised to return their seeds and then they she would get all her watermelon seeds back from the from the school system but uh doesn't seem like it'd be an effective method these days you know luckily we have a lot of visitors at our farm regularly with huge amounts of lunch you know lunchtime people so we can eat two or three watermelons and (laughs) at a time Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from some friends who actually also interviewed Brian O'Hara a couple times on their podcast. And I'll link to those in the show notes. And then we'll go out into the field and look at some crops there. Hey, everyone. If you're enjoying this show, you may also like the No-Till Market Garden Podcast with co-hosts Mimi Castile, Natalie Lansbury, and yours truly, Alex Ball. We interview growers, researchers, and others in the sustainable ag community about everything from soil-first farming practices to farm business management in the wild world of soil biology and health. So head over to your favorite podcast platform today and subscribe to the No-Till Growers Network. All right, let's go look at stuff out here. Ah. Yeah, supposed to get in the 50s today. Mm, a lovely Christmas weather. Yes, yes. <laughs> it actually feels maybe, I, I've never been to Ireland, but it feels like what, I imagine Ireland to feel like. Yeah, well, it is heading towards, you know, that kind of environment, mm-hmm. you know, coastal, uh, high humidity, high, uh, lots of rain and uh, moderated temperatures. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, I know you're more Irish identified. Ooh, we're walking past a, a bucket of bones. Mm-hmm. Where, where are those going to end up? Uh, bones we generally grind and make fertilizer or uh, people like them they take them home too just as collectors items and <laughs> okay. stuff they're yeah. deer mostly yeah a lot of deer uh-huh. yep well I was gonna say you I know you're very Irish identified you're learning the language you know the music w- what are the ways your kind of Irish identity manifests on the farm oh let's see how's the Irish manifest on the farm you know my ancestors came over in the potato famine which was, of course, uh, intentional starvation of the Irish to move them off the island. And uh, so the Irish people have gone through a lot of oppression, obviously. And uh, so that kind of gives gives you a a different outlook than uh, a lot of people that might not have experienced that level of difficulties from other segments of the uh, colonial empires and things like that so you know it gives you just a a kind of different perspective on things it also makes me like to grow a lot of potatoes you know because uh 
obviously the Irish were surviving on eating potatoes because everything else was taken from them. And then, of course, when the potato crop failed, uh, nothing was left for them to eat. It was interesting, intentional starvation of a population through uh, taxation and uh, rental payments. And, you know, Irish, you couldn't own your own land. And you're basically just a serf. Uh, and then your food was removed from you, you know, and, uh, which, of course, moved Irish out to other English-speaking lands. So a lot of them came over here to the northeast of the country. Came into Boston and New York, and so there's a lot of Irish people around here, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, but yeah, so I'm a potato enthusiast, you know. I love growing potatoes. We grow a lot of potatoes. I'm getting into growing more and more potatoes, and yeah, you know, I like the soft day like this. You know, as environment changes, you know, I'm looking forward to getting over to Ireland. You know, we just got our passports and stuff like that, and. Uh, yeah, I like other peop Irish people, I like the Irish music. One thing that can be said about the Irish, you know, is that the repression led to really good music, you know, which is difficult for maybe the English to say as much or, you know, other more oppressive <laughs> regions, you know. You know, the level of repression made for great music. Also, you know, the Irish, you know, ability and fortitude to to survive under oppressive conditions and still enjoy life, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, those things are kind of integral to the to the Irish uh, experience and things like that. Yeah, and we're just having a great time with it, playing the Irish music, you know, learning the language, get over there. It's, it's such an important country and really, you know, because when you think about it, I mean, things haven't changed that much. And we're all severely oppressed by the system, of course, worldwide at this point. And so to still have that same level of uh, enjoyment and, and happiness, you know, is important for all people, not just Irish people, you know. And so, you know, they, Ireland has a lot to offer us mm -hmm. through their, their attitudes and their music and the, and the ability to survive under difficult you know, situations, mm -hmm. including our new weather, which r highly resembles Ireland. <laughs> it really does right now. It's really, really heavy fog, warm. Yeah, yeah. it's a great, beautiful gray day mm -hmm. in Ireland. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, New Ireland. New Ireland, uh, right, right, yeah. not New England. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, that was a great answer, better than I could do. You know, I'm also mostly Irish. I think right. you might know that yeah. um, if you p break it all down. And have a good Irish name. I think that's by mistake, yeah, yeah. by oh. coincidence, <laughs> Owen. Um, but I too, as as I'm farming, especially potatoes, since I know that particularly one of my great grandmothers, Mary Lenahan, she grew up growing potatoes and cabbages, and fish. Her family fished in the Galway Bay, in a thatched roof house. You know, so when I'm out there with my hands in the soil, especially with potatoes, I just like to have this like portal of connection mm -hmm. to my ancestors mm -hmm. who were doing the same thing right and right, like portal right. of like gratitude to, yeah, to have yeah, that yeah. in my bones yes. you know <laughs> yeah 
So anyway, nice to be Irish with you. Yes, Let's, likewise. <laughs> what, what can you show us here in terms of, because okay. your overwintering system has been decades in the making mm -hmm. and actually hasn't changed much. Your farming mm -hmm. systems have changed radically yep. since I've known you right. uh, in terms of using machines, um, mm -hmm. but without, and, and, not, and no longer tilling much at all and writing the book. Can you say the name of your book? Oh yeah. The book, No-Till Intensive Vegetable Culture. Yes, and you've been interviewed by other podcasts about this, mm -hmm. so we're going to stick with seeds. Right. But I wanted to mention that you are kind of a very important person in the no-till world for oh. people to check out the book and other yeah. podcasts about that. So those systems have radically shifted since I've known you, but this overwintering system is pretty rudimentary and effective, yeah. so I'd love to yeah. hear about it. Okay, so we primarily overwinter these brassicas and lettuces and spinaches and things, mosh is in there, claytonia. Uh, we primarily overwinter them under low tunnels in the field. We generally no longer use high tunnels. Uh, the low tunnel seems to be superior in terms of maintenance of soil quality. Uh, high tunnels tend to run down soils. So we really appreciate low tunnels for the ability to maintain soil fertility and qualities. The low tunnel is a double layer of plastic over steel hoops with sandbags holding them along the sides of the covers. So, you know, the specifics of all that would be in the book. Uh, the, the inner cover is a perforated plastic that allows us to vent the tunnel to allow airflow or rain into the cover to a small degree. Let's rain in. If you want full rain, you can open the cover all the way. Uh, the ability of it to integrate to environmental conditions through removing the cover or allowing it to vent or perforated cover only allows it to be uh, in closer relationship to natural environmental conditions, which I think is the reason why they don't run down soil the way a high tunnel does, which is just much more cut off from the natural uh, environmental conditions. So these integrate better. They are very inexpensive. You can cover large areas very inexpensively and uh, they remove out of the way for when you want to do summer culture of the land so you can get your equipment and things over the beds that were previously covered. Well let's take a look under one. Can we see Claytonia or Mosh just because we haven't talked about those much sure. yet when you have those seeds in our catalog. <laughs> let's see which one. Man. Here's the mosh. Mm -hmm. This is one we've been saving for a few years. It's a smaller leaf. It's not the large leaf mosh. Oh no, this one is the large leaf mosh. Yep, pretty long leaf. And, you know, extremely winter hardy. We're very happy with it. It is very tasty. We really like mosh. Mmm, mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. It's very good. What a mm -hmm. flavor. Mm -hmm. So we really enjoy growing mosh really flavorful winter salad green now when do you harvest this for the winter salad greens it already has started being harvested i see here but it's really just getting underway uh with harvest now and we certainly can seed it earlier and have it ready in the fall but this particular bed you know is seeded later mm -hmm. and is just coming into harvest now at christmas time 
So for for the salad grains you're harvesting now, can you can you talk about what's going into those mixes? They're mixes, correct? Yeah. Right now the salad greens are still primarily lettuce and they have mosh, claytonia, and then some of the brassicas. It would be the mizuna. And then on a spicier salad blend, it would have cress, mustard, and arugula in it. Oh, yeah, and both of those have got the pea tips still going, which is abnormal for this time of year. You know, it's just because we haven't, we've barely hit 20 degrees, and, you know, they're under a row cover. And normally the peas have, you know, died back or are damaged by this time of year, but they're still going gangbusters out there. So, mm-hmm. And today, just for listeners, is December 26th uh, up here in Lebanon, Connecticut, yeah. town over from where I grew up. And wh- how long do you think you'll be harvesting for those mixes with the current, you know, crops in the ground? Yeah, it doesn't stop. It's going to go straight yeah, through the year. Just constant harvesting of salad greens, spinaches. Basically, coming out of the field this time of year, the primary crop is going to be spinach and the salad green mixtures of lettuces and the other winter hardy greens. Certainly, we'll harvest some a few other things like cilantros or parsley, but you know the bulk of it is is the spinach and the and the salad salad green mixtures. Okay, so even though up here it usually goes not just below 20 but towards zero in yeah. January, February, you're going to be harvesting throughout. Yeah, even under those conditions, you know, we generally can harvest throughout. At the last few years, the ground here it barely freezes, and most of the time now we can continue to seed and grow crops straight through the winter, whereas you know, 20, 30 years ago, the ground would be frozen starting after Thanksgiving, and it was either covered in growing things or not. You didn't have the option of just continuously growing, planting new things. So basically, you know, with the assistance of a low tunnel and, but even open culture, I mean, you could certainly just prep up a bed right now and plant spinach, and it would be ready in the spring. You know, you you can start your, basically any any winter hardy crop in the wide open at any time of the winter at this point up here it's it's warmed up mm-hmm. in the winter anyway significantly the summers are actually a little cooler but uh much more humid mm-hmm. and you know and basically the what's happened here is the 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 summer's cooler with more humidity there's too much particulate matter in the atmosphere mm-hmm. so it's trapping in all the humidity and moderating the temperatures. So it's being moderated so that the summers are cooler, the fall is extremely, we live under a blanket. So the the summers have been cooled because we're under a blanket, hot temperatures can't penetrate, but super humid. The fall is very extended uh, because we're under the blanket. The winter is temperatures are moderated and uh, it's like consistent like the temperatures are not spiking up and down nearly as much as very consistent temperatures but very moderate like ireland and then the the spring is delayed because we're under a blanket and it's more difficult for the sun to penetrate and uh, start to warm up the the spring temperatures so that's been the basic uh situation for i don't know eight years ten years now Mm -hmm. 
Wow. So greens all all year, more than ever. Yeah, more than ever. <laughs> Some of the upsides of a very sad situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll adjust and survive. Things will improve. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, so there's Mosh. And you want to see some clay tones? Sure. I don't know how this is. Claytonias. Those are just coming along. Yeah, nice. Why? Why would? Why would someone grow mosh or claytonia, or cress if it's not already in their kind of crop plan? Oh well, they're delicious. You know, for starters, the you know mosh is just so good tasting and claytonia is pretty good tasting too they are easy to grow claytonia is basically a wild plant you know it's wild miners lettuce from the rocky mountains i believe and you know it's capable of just growing itself you know year after year it self seeds grows in the winter and you know i love cress you know very flavorful you know kind of spicy in the winter like a watercress, except for it grows on land, and uh, you know, very healthful benefits, and you know, real winter hardy. Mm -hmm. It just gives these all give your salad mix like a real complexity, you oh, know, yeah. that you can't find usually when right, you're getting right. a mix at the store. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The flavors are uh, largely due to environmental conditions. So, like I was saying, the cold temperatures just, uh, you know, you can't grow a green in California where there's barely any freezing and achieve nearly the complexity and flavor of a of a winter grown green in, in New England or New Ireland. And so it's uh, you know, great flavors and of course, you know, our attention to soil quality details because the soil is uh, results in the flavors. You know, and I often say, you know, when we talk about soil quality and food quality, flavor is one of the primary indicators of a well-grown, healthy crop. Because the flavor components, things that we identify as flavorful, require a level of metabolic complexity for them to really fully develop. So if the plant had... And, and this is true of pigments too, enough complexity to develop uh, very appropriate, vibrant pigments and excellent flavor, you get all other characteristics of quality, which are insect and disease resistance, long storage, and contains all the vitamins and nutrients and antioxidants and things that translate to health in us. It's the same compounds in a plant that give it vitality and lack of insects and disease that then when we consume it, uh, we get those same qualities of vitality in us. So I often say to a customer uh, that you, the customer is walking around with their own quality meter, simply with their taste buds and their eyes and their ability to identify what's vibrant and flavorful. And when you consume that, you will w get the results of that kind of vigor in you. So you don't need fancy inputs and laboratory. You have them right on you. And, of course, the opposite is true. There's a lot of washed-out, watery, terrible-tasting, you know, tastes-like-nothing foods out there. And those are all 
uh, nutrient deficient and not going to bring about vitality. And they're the ones that are loaded with pesticides because they required pesticides to keep insects and diseases from destroying them. So I often say, you know, to a customer, if, if the if the fruit or vegetable is really, and it's true of other foods too, but if it really tastes excellent, even if it was conventionally grown and not necessarily an organic certified crop or something like that, uh, if a crop is grown so well that it tastes really good, it did not require pesticides. So a grower uh, is not likely to apply pesticides. I mean, sometimes they do, but generally, you know, growers are not going to apply pesticides when they are not required. It takes a lot of effort and money and it's not profitable to apply pesticides. So, you know, and usually a grower that's got that level of quality knows what's going on and is not going to be out applying pesticides. So really, you know, certifications, all this kind of thing aside, I mean, every human is walking around with excellent quality meters capable of really, you know, determining what is what is appropriate for their health mm -hmm. right on them, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For my quality meters, I mean, this this place is a wonderland, Taste, a tasty wonderland. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a beautiful way to wrap up because it really gets to the heart of your, your work, which is so much about investing in your soil as a way to invest in your vegetables and invest in our collective health. Yeah. So thank you for your decades of work making us healthier and having more delicious things to eat. <laughs> uh, that's the life. Ah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Um, do you want to say, say anything to sign off? Uh, let's see. Slan uh, uh, Lot. Health to you. Slan Lot. <laughs> health to you too <laughs> maybe maybe if we're lucky we can insert some music from you and well can you tell us what we may be hearing if we are to hear it what will we be hearing oh uh well let's see you know my daughter plays uh irish music with me and uh, her boyfriend and his brother and uh, we like to, to cover irish songs i don't know which one they're going to play for you maybe marlo shore or uh Maybe water is wide or something, but uh, I'm sure they'll play something real appropriate. And, uh, you know, it's great to listen to them. Nice. What's yeah. the name of your group? Oh, they're called Kinfolk. Well, we're called Kinfolk. They let me play with them, even though I'm the old guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can't wait to hear it. All right. Yep. Thank you. All right. Thanks, so. For our outro song today, we'll hear Morlo Shore by Kinfolk with Clara O'Hara on lead vocals and flute. Raven Beliveau on lead and backing violin, Sparrow Beliveau on piano, and Brian O'Hara on guitar.
I took to spend my so much to Brian O'Hara for taking the time for this lovely interview. And thank you for listening and sharing this episode of Seeds and Their People with your loved ones. Please share this episode with someone you love and subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast app. 
Thank you also for helping our seed keeping and storytelling work by leaving us a review and also ordering seeds, t-shirts, and more from our website. TrueLoveSeeds.com. And can you maybe send us a note if you like our episodes? I'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you. It helps us keep it going. And if you'd like to support our podcast for $1 or more monthly, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds. And remember, keeping seeds is an act of true love for our ancestors and our collective future. God bless you.